Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Raise Green podcast. I'm your host today, Franz Hochstrasser, CEO and co-founder of Raise Green. Raise Green podcast explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. Short, accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. Welcome to Raise Green. Hello, everybody. This is Franz Hochstrasser, CEO and co-founder of Raise Green. Today, we are extraordinarily fortunate to have two guests from the inimitable Connecticut Green Bank. And our first guest uh, I'll introduce needs very little introduction. Um, Brian Garcia is the president and CEO of the Connecticut Green Bank, the nation's first state-level green bank. Before joining the Green Bank, uh, Garcia was program director for the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. And at Yale, uh, he led efforts to develop a leading global program responsible for preparing environmental leaders for business and society. Prior to Yale, he served as Connecticut's climate change coordinator, where he supported the governor's steering committee on climate change. And earlier in his career, he was a US Peace Corps volunteer specializing in NGO capacity building and environmental education in the Republic of Kazakhstan. Brian currently serves on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board, and he is on the board of directors of the Energy Foundation, Institute for Sustainable Communities, Center for Sustainable Energy and Sustainable CT. He also serves on the advisory board of the Yale Center for Business and the Environment and holds a BS degree in political economy of natural resources from Berkeley, an MPA in public and nonprofit administration from the New York Wagner School, and an MBA in finance from New York University's Stern, as well as an MEM degree from the Yale School of the Environment. So welcome to the show, Brian. It's good to be with you, Franz. Great to have you on. Um, our second guest is Bert Hunter, the Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of the Connecticut Green Bank. And as Chief Investment Officer, Bert leads the finance team's development of new and innovative financing programs that attract more private capital to scale up the state's clean energy investments, including energy efficiency, renewables, and alternative fuel vehicles and associated infrastructure. Bert was Vice President of Finance and Chief Financial Officer of Spectrum Capital Limited, an investment bank focused on commercial aircraft finance and investments in U.S. electric power generation. He was accountable for all financial control and served as the company's senior risk officer, overseeing all extensions of credit and investment from the firm's capital. Prior to Spectrum, Bert was the treasurer of the international leasing company of Chemical Bank, where he managed the funding for a billion-dollar portfolio of aircraft and equipment loans, as well as leases outside the United States. Bert is an alumnus, a former trustee, and former member of the board of visitors of Wake Forest University, uh, where he has a BS, and received his MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So welcome, Bert. Thank you, Franz. Good to be with you today. It's a distinct honor to have you both on, and we are thrilled to be working with you all. So we always start with a, a softball question. I, I just read your, your bios in, but I'll, I'll turn this to both of you um, to share in your own words. Um, who are you and, and what are you uh, working on these days? 
thank you for the opportunity for Bert and I to be a part of the Raise Green podcast. Uh, we're really excited to be working with Raise Green too, which we'll, we'll get to. We're about trying to bring capital to help families and businesses uh, do what they want to do. You know, in our case right now, it's to finance clean energy projects. And, you know, when they do that, they realize benefits to their families, they, they save energy costs, but they also help us realize the benefits to society, you know, jobs in their communities, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. You know, we're, we're about public service and what we can do uh, to play our part in ensuring that people have the capital they need to do what's best for society. We're working on continuing progress and bringing, I would call them deployment partners and as well as capital to the state. You know, the, the challenge before us in, in meeting the 1.5C challenge uh, in climate change is, is really one of deployment and getting those carbon uh, reducing resources out there in the marketplace. Uh, and you know, so that's, that's really a deployment game with all of our, our partners who do that. And so you know, it's really that challenge and we feel that if we meet that challenge, then the financing side is, is really relatively easy and straightforward. There's plenty of, of liquidity in the marketplace. It's just about channeling that capital to these projects and programs. Absolutely. Such such powerful mission um, and such a strong vision coming from the Connecticut Green Bank, which really is a, is a national leader and, and global leader in the space. Uh, I want to go back in time a little bit and ask, how did the Connecticut Green Bank originally come to be? We were actually a part of a failed federal policy. So that goes back to 2009, uh, when then representatives, uh, Congressman Markey and Congressman Van Hollen, uh, you might recall the American Clean Energies and Securities Act of 2009, which had proposed a national cap and trade system. Well, Congressman Van Hollen introduced into that ACES policy, uh, something called the Clean Energy Development Authority, also known as CEDA, uh, which was a proposal to effectively create the first national climate bank that would provide capital to states to do effectively what Bird is talking about, to help citizens deploy clean energy. Um, when that policy didn't pass the Senate, the originators said, you know, why don't we take the idea to the states? And the Coalition for Green Capital, uh, led by Reed Hunt, and working with Dan Esty, Professor Dan Esty uh, at, the, at Yale University, uh, who was coming into uh, becoming the commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, wanted to uh, create the nation's first state-level green bank. And effectively in July of 2011, through nearly a unanimous bipartisan act of legislation, created the Connecticut Green Bank. We were passed 10 years ago. We just passed our 10-year anniversary and uh, happy to report that we have invested nearly $300 million of public resources to unlock uh, $1.8 billion of private investment in Connecticut's green economy. So that has uh, helped support over 60,000 families and businesses reduce the burden of energy costs by deploying renewable energy, energy efficiency. Um, that's helped create over 25,000 jobs in our communities. Um, and of course, that's helped reduce the uh, greenhouse gas emissions that cause global climate change in, in Connecticut over the life of those measures that will help reduce about 10 million metric tons of CO2 emissions, which is not a small number for Connecticut. It's about 25% of our annual 
uh, state emissions. Yeah, that's how it got started. It really started from a federal policy that failed and uh, they took it to a state. And now we're seeing uh, green banks all over the country at the city, county, state levels, even international levels, which Bert is very actively involved in. Wow. So it's sort of Phoenix rising from the ashes of a, a cap and trade effort. It didn't get across the line back with Waxman Markey. I, I didn't didn't realize that. And it's good to hear that the good things come even from failure at times. I think, Bert, you alluded to this a little bit in your, your first response, but there's now reports that if we get full implementation of all of the announced targets, including net zero targets and binding long-term targets and nationally determined contributions from countries, uh, that in an optimistic best case scenario, we may be on track to a a 1.8 degree uh, Celsius warming scenario, which is actually fairly optimistic. Um, although there's a lot of other um, analysis out there that suggests it will be difficult. But uh, how are green banks uh, focused on tackling the climate crisis specifically? Really, the challenge is to kind of meet citizens, you know, be they residents in single family homes or multifamily homes, small medium enterprises, commercial industrial customers, et cetera, you know, all those, all those different parts of, of our, our country to kind of meet them where they are. You know, a number of uh, those people have the, the information and you know, wherewithal to carry forward with, with projects that will be energy saving as well as carbon reducing. But so much of our state is economically disadvantaged and they need more assistance and, and guidance in terms of what they, they can do. And sometimes you have to work with various stakeholders to kind of make uh, this this energy transition happens. So the green banks that have cropped up around the country, you know, including you know our neighbors in New York and and Rhode Island very closely, you know, what we're all focused on is trying trying to make sure that you know, from an information perspective, people know what's uh, available, you know, how they can participate in this this energy transition. To are out there, you know, delivering, you know, energy sources, and they too are part of this, this challenge. In the state, they work through their, the Energy Efficiency Board in uh, promoting through incentive programs to make, make things happen. And then we work, you know, with them to make sure that the financing complements those incentives so that we can achieve the reductions in, in, in carbon and energy savings and reducing energy burdens on citizens and businesses throughout the state. A very justice-driven role and one that is not getting played by some of the more traditional banks, it sounds like. What role exactly do green banks kind of play in, in democratizing finance? You know, as, as a green bank, we have a um, a Justice 40 target. We, we have a target to ensure that no less than 40% of investments and benefits inure to vulnerable communities. In Connecticut, we have a definition for vulnerable communities, essentially meaning low to moderate income families, environmental justice communities, targets that our audience here will, will understand. The challenge for green banks as nonprofits, public institutions, is how do we help unlock private investment to support the policy objectives that we're after to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to adapt, to make ourselves more resilient to the impacts of climate, while ensuring that our most vulnerable citizens, you know, those who have contributed the least to the problem 
and yet bear a majority of the burden? Um, how do we ensure that we can drive investment to help them reduce their energy costs and become more resilient to climate? So a lot of uh, the activities that the green banks do, and you know, Bert has been really instrumental in Connecticut in helping enable our local financial institutions, our local community banks and credit unions. Uh, you know, we have a program called the Smarty Loan, where over the last nine years, our local credit unions have invested over $100 million to help families uh, reduce the burden of energy costs by financing clean energy improvements. We recognized in 2014, as we were implementing a statutory requirement to deploy 350 megawatts of residential solar in Connecticut, that we were leaving behind uh, low to moderate income families and communities of color. Uh, and that was completely unacceptable. So we had to demonstrate how the green bank model could unlock private investment to ensure that our low to moderate income families and communities of color can realize the benefits that solar PV provides them. Uh, we we're able to, through issuing requests for proposals, a competitive RFP, find a company out of New Orleans, Louisiana called Posigen, brought them up to Connecticut. We surrounded them with investment. Uh, we increased incentives for LMI families. And Connecticut today is known as a solar with justice state, which essentially means that our low to moderate income families are demanding solar PV proportionately more than non-LMI families. And our communities of color are doing the same. And as a result, because of things like Posigen, our solar for all campaign, our you know, solar lease and energy efficiency program, uh, we're completely eliminating the energy affordability gap. So we are bringing clean energy to our vulnerable communities, while at the same time uh, putting money back in their pockets so that they can invest it uh, in things that, they're that are more important to their families. So green banks are doing this across the country. You know, it's, it's how are we uh, working to use and invest uh, public resources to unlock more private investment to do these sorts of things. And there are green banks across this country that are doing uh, extraordinary things to, to make that happen. You might have mentioned and I want to make sure I get the numbers right. I think you said you've invested now over the last 10 years. And by the way, happy birthday of 10 years is a, is a big milestone in any organization. You said, I think 300 million, and that's leveraged uh, 1.8 billion. The leverage ratio there is, is fantastic. And that may be you know, one thing that other banks can strive for, and frankly, national governments as well, the world around. Is there something or anything specific that you want uh, the world to know or our listeners to know about the Connecticut Green Bank uh, that we haven't haven't touched on yet? I would say that you know we were born out of really good, solid uh, energy policy by the state legislature and the governor, and that was passed uh, practically unanimously by both houses of our legislature, which is really practically unheard of, certainly these days. But even today, we enjoy this bipartisan support. And we believe it's because we not only deliver meaningful benefits for the environment, uh, which over the last 10 years has been about 10 million tons of CO2 avoidance, but also delivering economic benefits to the state. You know, you mentioned the, you know, 2.1 billion of investment, but there are also 25,000, more than 25,000 direct, indirect, and induced jobs and over $100 million of enhancements to state coffers from individual corporate and sales taxes. 
the energy burden that I mentioned earlier has been made possible for more than 57,000 families and 6,000 businesses throughout the state. And something that is generally overlooked, but health benefits, they're, they're kind of hard to measure, but we kind of peg them at between 300 and 700 million dollars in lifetime public health benefits. Uh, you know, as the GHGs and particulate matter is reduced, uh, particularly on uh, urban and uh, populations and distressed communities. So, you know, that's all of that has been, you know, very positive and a very strong impact to the state. The, the other thing I would like people to know is that we're making it possible now for um, for citizens across the country, uh, Connecticut and, and beyond, to participate in our green economy here in Connecticut. We did that first with our green liberty bonds, which really have, were brought about to help support our residential solar investment program, uh, which has delivered more than 350 megawatts of, of solar. So we completed that goal. But those green liberty bonds really made it possible for us to get those incentives into the marketplace by issuing the bonds to bring in the capital so that we can put it out the door in terms of incentives over a six-year period. So we did that. And now with the Raise Green platform, we're making it possible to invest even lower than the green liberty bonds, which are available at a $1,000 level the green liberty notes that we'll, we will be issuing on the raise green platform will lower that threshold even further down to $100. So we're looking forward to that and putting those investments on your platform. Just adding to Bert's point here, and I'm sure Franz, this is absolutely what you see with raise green is, you know, citizens across this country absolutely want to invest in their local uh, in national green economies. You know, we, we were inspired by the war bonds of the 1940s, which really galvanized over half of the US population, you know, 85 million Americans, you know, purchased $185 billion in war bonds to support uh, our efforts in World War II. You know, $185 billion then is about $3 trillion today raised from the American people. So by far the largest contribution financially to supporting that war effort even beyond taxation. So, um, you know, we're, we're excited to, to be working with you all to um, help our citizens um, here in Connecticut and across the country uh, support uh, what's happening here. Uh, we're excited by that and uh, looking forward to continuing to work with Raise Green uh, to bring this capital to bear uh, to our local green economy. Just the unity that comes along with opening up ways for individuals to actually get involved in, in solutions and contribute not just their time and, and their, their voices, but also their, their dollars um, is, is such a, a powerful way, I think, to drive societal change. Um, and, and that's certainly why, uh, why we do what we do here at Raise Green. But it's incredible to get to work with you know, established players like yourselves um, who have been at it for over a decade now with the same mission at heart. So I wonder if I can just, as a, as a kind of last set of questions before I give you the final word, 
shift to talking a little bit about the experience of going through uh, Raise Green's crowdfunding platform and how it's been different. Um, we have a lot of folks who are contemplating doing listings uh, on Raise Green, and we exist here as a mechanism to create greater access to capital as well for more community level and local scale climate solutions. So can you maybe speak a little bit to your experience thus far? Sure, sure. It's first of all, the, the Raise Green team has just been uh, fantastic to work with, just a, a solid group of professionals who know what they're doing in, in this field. And yeah, Franz, it's, it's, it's not easy to, to come to market to, you know, basically put your wares up uh, on, a, on a platform, be that the municipal bond market, the asset-backed securities market, or your platform. So it's all about trying to understand how you kind of guide that investment process. And I must say that your, your platform is quite impressive. And we did our diligence with some of the other issuers that have been on your platform prior to us. And yeah, everyone was just very happy with their experience. And yeah, we're in the middle of it. And so far, so far, it's been just great. You know, we, um, I think we've, we've brought some unique challenges, I would say, to the Raise Green team. But it's, it's all in the spirit of really growth of, of the opportunities that will be there in the future and to try to make sure that uh, what we bring to the platform, we're able to then uh, share and replicate at least to our green bank compatriots, because we see the potential of this platform being utilized uh, across the country. And as Brian mentioned, uh, affording local communities the opportunity to invest in what these green banks are, are doing. Music to my ears, Bert. Um, thanks, for, thanks for saying that. And uh, it, it has been, as I said, you know, a, a distinct honor and pleasure to work with your team there at the Green Bank. Before we wrap up, I'll, I'll give you a last, uh, give, you, give you both an opportunity to weigh in with any, any last thoughts, but um, maybe just as a quick prompt for that and backing up a bit, you know, with all of the great work that has happened and uh, being being the second at the end of the second week of of the global climate conference here when we're recording this, um, how are you feeling kind of writ large about optimism, pessimism in the, in the face of some of these enormous uh, climate as well as economic challenges that that face us today? Well, I, I guess I would say that um, I'm by nature an optimistic person, but I think. Um, you know, halfway in to, to COP, we saw here in our country the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure framework, uh, which is going to enable you know, $1.2 billion, $1.2 trillion of investment in uh, modernizing uh, our nation's infrastructure. Um, that was great to see. Uh, we still have uh, more to go. We've got the Build Back Better framework uh, that's on deck. So our hope is to see that, uh, that pass and unlock a more investment to decarbonize our infrastructure and make it more resilient to the impacts of climate change. So I am optimistic uh, that uh, here in the U.S. we are getting our priorities focused on uh, building a green economy, uh, building back better. 
Um, so uh, yeah, re really excited to see that you know domestic leadership coming here uh, out of the U.S. Well, I have some concerns. I guess I'm probably not alone in that, um, uh, but also hopeful. You know, my concern is really over the $100 billion promise that the richest nations on earth had pledged to the poorest nations who are really feeling most of the brunt of climate change. And we, I think we seem to be a bit challenged. You know, the wealthier nations seem to be a little bit challenged in, in getting there. I, I feel they will get there, but you know, isn't it kind of odd in a week where yeah, a company that has barely sold 100 trucks can be valued at over $100 billion in one week, <laughs> that the most wealthy nations can't seem to scrounge up $100 billion for this existential effort. I mean, there's something terribly wrong with that picture, but, but I'll just lay that out there. Uh, and say that I am, though, hopeful. Um, I think it was on Wednesday, maybe it was Thursday, you know, a joint statement by the U.S. and China to work cooperatively to slow global warming. I think that is such a powerful signal because, you know, here you have the two largest emitters of greenhouse gases on the planet. Um, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is really important. This is existential. You know, we, we might not agree on a lot of things, but there are some things that we need to work on together. So in that regard, I'm, I'm hopeful and, and optimistic and, uh, you know, keeping my fingers crossed. Fabulous. Um, powerful reflections on, on where we are and where we still have to go. So Brian, Bert, I want to thank you very much for coming on today and uh, excited to see uh, your work proceed and grow with, with greater degrees of inclusion and benefits flowing to those that need them the most. Uh, you're playing an incredible role in this, this uh, unfolding story, and uh, it's, it's a, a great a privilege to get to spend some time discussing that with you. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Franz. Great, great to be here.